Welcome to the National Vaccine Information Center's podcast series, Informed Consent to Vaccination, a Human Right. These podcasts are from previously recorded and referenced commentaries and articles produced by MVIC, a charitable nonprofit organization. My name is Barbara Lowe Fisher. I'm co-founder and president of the nonprofit National Vaccine Information Center. And this is a presentation I gave at the 2014 U.S. Health Freedom Congress in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Those tiny miracles, God's most precious gift to us. We hold them in wonder just moments after they're born. We love them in a way we never thought we could love anyone. And they love and trust us in a way that no one else ever will. And then one day we wake up and they're as big as we are ready to go out in the world and make their own way and hold their own babies in their arms, completing the natural order of life. But for many children, the natural order of life will never be completed. Some have already died. Some will one day join the ranks of the working disabled. And others will grow old and die in state homes with the bodies of adults and the brains of babies. For these children, the natural order of life has been forever changed by man-made viral and bacterial vaccines they were required by law to use. The public conversation about whether we should have the freedom to choose how we want to maintain our physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health has become one of the most important public conversations of our time. It is a conversation that challenges us to examine complex public policy, scientific, ethical, legal, philosophical, economic, political, and cultural issues. This may appear to be a new conversation, but it has been around for centuries. At the center of this new and old public conversation about health and freedom is the topic of vaccination. What unites those defending an open discussion about vaccination and health is a commitment to defending bodily integrity and the inalienable right to self-determination, which has been globally acknowledged as a human right. Whether you are a healthcare professional practicing complementary and alternative medicine or specializing in homeopathic, naturopathic, chiropractic, acupuncture, or other holistic health options, or you're a consumer advocate working for the right to know and freedom to choose how you and your family will stay well, many of you have a deep concern about health and freedom. The most divisive and hotly debated of all health freedom issues is the question of whether individuals should be at liberty to dissent from established medical and government health policy and exercise freedom of thought, speech, and conscience when it comes to vaccination. In the health freedom movement, there are some who will defend the legal right to purchase and use nutritional supplements, drink raw milk, eat GMO-free food, remove fluoride from public water systems and mercury from dental amalgams, or choose non-medical mo model options for healing and staying well, but are reluctant to publicly support the legal right to make vaccine choices. Vaccination is a medical procedure that has been elevated to a sacrosanct status by those in control of the medical model-based healthcare system for the past two centuries. Vaccination is now being proclaimed as the most important scientific discovery and public health intervention in the history of medicine. 
Using religious symbols and crusading language, medical scientists describe vaccination as the holy grail. Vaccines, they say, are going to eradicate all causes of sickness and death from the earth, and anyone who doubts that is an ignorant fool. In the 1970s, pediatrician and health freedom pioneer Robert Mendelson, who described himself as a medical heretic, warned that medical science has become a religion and doctors have turned the act of vaccination into the new sacrament. In the 21st century, if you refuse to believe that vaccination is a moral and civic duty and dare to question vaccine safety or advocate for the legal right to decline one or more government recommended vaccines, you are in danger of being branded an anti-science heretic, a traitor, and a threat to the public health. You are viewed as a person of interest who deserves to be humiliated, silenced, and punished for your dissent. Quote, to learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize, said Voltaire the great 18th century writer during the Age of the Enlightenment who was imprisoned several times in the Bastille for defending freedom of thought and speech before the French Revolution. As contentious as the public conversation about vaccination, health, and autonomy has become, we cannot be afraid to have it. There has never been a better time to exercise our power and challenge those ruling our health care with an iron fist. We have the tools in the 21st century to bring about a modern age of enlightenment that will liberate the people so we can take back our freedom and our health. The electronic communications revolution has provided a global platform for us to access the library of medicine and evaluate the quality and quantity of vaccine science used to make public health policy and create vaccine laws. The World Wide Web allows us to circumvent the paid mainstream media dominated by industry and governments and publicly communicate in detail on our computers, tablets, and smartphones exactly what happened to our health or our child's health after vaccination. We are connected with each other in a way that we have never been before. And it is time to talk about vaccines and microbes and the true causes of poor health. It is time to face the fear that we and our children will get sick and die if we don't believe and do with those we have allowed to rule our healthcare system with an iron fist tell us to believe and do. What is at stake in this debate between citizens challenging the status quo and those resisting constructive change is who will control the multi-trillion dollar U.S. healthcare system? If people have the right to know and freedom to choose how to heal and stay healthy, a free people may think independently and choose to spend their money on something different from what they have been carefully taught to spend their money on right now. A free people may reject sole reliance on the expensive and some say ineffective pharmaceutical-based medical model that has dominated U.S. healthcare for two centuries. A free people may refuse to buy and eat GMO foods. 
of free people may walk away from doctors who threaten and punish patients for refusing to obey orders to get an annual flu shot or decline to give their children every single government-recommended vaccine on schedule, no exceptions and no questions asked. The most rational and compelling arguments for defending health freedom, including vaccine freedom of choice, are grounded in ethics, law, science, and economics. The human right to voluntary informed consent to vaccination is the best example of why Americans must not wait any longer to stand up and defend without compromise the inalienable right to autonomy and protection of bodily integrity. I and the more than 100,000 followers and supporters of the nonprofit charity, the National Vaccine Information Center, take an informed consent position with regard to vaccination. Since our founding in 1982, we have defended the ethical principle of informed consent to vaccine risk taking because vaccines are pharmaceutical products that carry a risk of injury, death and failure. And because informed consent to medical risk taking is a central ethical principle guiding the ethical practice of medicine. We support the first do no harm precautionary approach to public policy, which focuses on how much harm can be prevented from a policy or law and not how much harm is acceptable. We do not advocate for or against use of vaccines. We support your human and legal right to make informed voluntary healthcare decisions for yourself and your children and choose to use every government recommended vaccine, a few vaccines or no vaccines at all. MVIC has worked for more than 30 years to secure vaccine safety and informed consent provisions in public health policies and laws, including flexible medical, religious, and conscientious belief vaccine exemptions. We are doing this in an increasingly hostile environment created by an industry government medical trade alliance that is lobbying for laws to compel all Americans to use every government recommended vaccine without deviation from the official schedule or face a growing number of societal sanctions. Although historically, children have been the target for vaccine mandates, authoritarian implementation of federal vaccine policy is not just for children anymore. It is rapidly expanding to include all adults. Here's a photo of parents and healthcare professionals who traveled to Sacramento in 2012 to protest a law introduced by a pediatrician legislator to make it harder for parents to file a personal belief vaccine exemption for their children to attend school. They responded to action alerts NVIC issued through the online NVIC advocacy portal and lined the halls of the state capitol building, many with their children, and waited for hours and hours to testify at several public hearings. Mother after mother, father after father, grandparents, nurses, doctors, and students of chiropractic came to the public microphone. Some talked about how vaccine reactions left their children sick and disabled, but they can't find a doctor to write a medical exemption so their children can attend school. Others talked about how their babies died after vaccination and others simply opposed restriction of the legal right for parents to make medical decisions for their minor children. It was a remarkable public witnessing by articulate, courageous citizens pleading with their elected representatives to do the right thing. 
The right thing would have been for lawmakers to vote to leave the personal belief vaccine exemption alone so parents could continue to make vaccine decisions for their minor children without being forced to beg a hostile doctor or government official for permission to do that. That didn't happen. Today, parents in California are forced to pay a pediatrician or other state-approved health worker to sign a personal belief vaccine exemption, and the doctor can refuse to sign, and parents are reporting many pediatricians are refusing to sign. Yet, because two years ago, California citizens made a powerful public statement by participating in the democratic process and taking action with calls, letters, emails, and personal testimony. This year, Colorado citizens were inspired to do the same when the personal belief vaccine exemption was attacked in that state. Because in 2012, enough people in California did not sit back and assume the job of defending health freedom would get done by someone else. In 2014, enough people in Colorado did not assume it would get done by someone else. And this time, we were able to hold the line and protect the personal belief vaccine exemption in that state from being eliminated or restricted. This time, there were enough lawmakers in Colorado who listened and carefully considered the evidence. They did not cave into pressure from drug industry, government, and medical trade lobbyists labeling a minority of citizens as ignorant, selfish, crazy, and in need of having their parental and civil rights taken away for defending the human right to self-determination and informed consent to vaccine risk-taking. I do not tell anyone what risk to take and never will. The right and responsibility for making a risk decision belongs to the person taking the risk. Because when you become informed and think rationally about a risk you or your child will take and then follow your conscience, you own that decision. And when you own it, you can defend it. And once you can defend it, you will be ready to do whatever it takes to fight for your freedom to make it no matter who tries to prevent you from doing that. Albert Einstein, who risked arrest in Germany in the 1930s when he spoke out against censorship and persecution of minorities said, quote, never do anything against conscience, even if the state demands it. It takes strength to act independently. When the herd is all running off the cliff, the one running in the opposite direction seems crazy. People who think rationally and act independently, even when the majority does not, may be the only ones to survive. Gandhi was often persecuted by the ruling majority for challenging their authority and using nonviolent civil disobedience to public, publicly dissent. He said, quote, never apologize for being correct, for being ahead of your time. If you're right and you know it, speak your mind. Even if you are a minority of one, the truth is still the truth. Sharing what you know to be true empowers others to make conscious choices. The authors of the U.S. Constitution made sure to include strong language securing individual liberties, including freedom of thought, speech, and conscience. They did that because many of the families immigrating to America had personally faced discrimination 
and persecution in other countries for holding beliefs different from the ruling majority. In his first presidential inaugural address, Thomas Jefferson warned, quote, All too will bear in mind this sacred principle, that al although the will of the majority is in all cases to prevail, that will to be rightful must be reasonable, that the minority possess their equal rights, which equal law must protect, and to violate would be oppression. There is no liberty more fundamentally a natural, inalienable right than the freedom to think independently and follow your conscience when choosing what you will risk your life or your child's life for. And that is why voluntary informed consent to medical risk taking is a human right. Despite what you are being told by paid propaganda experts spinning the conversation about vaccination and health in the media today, getting vaccinated is not a patriotic act and declining to use a government recommended vaccine is not a criminal act. It is a choice. And vaccination must remain a choice because while we are all born equal, with equal rights under the law, we are not born all the same. Each one of us is born with different genes and a unique microbiome influenced by epigenetics that affects how we respond to the environments we live in. We do not all respond the same way to infectious diseases, and we do not all respond the same way to pharmaceutical products like vaccines. Public health laws that fail to respect biodiversity and force everyone to be treated the same are unethical and dangerous. The first time I really understood what it means to belong to a minority was after I witnessed my son Chris suffer a convulsion, collapse shock, and brain inflammation within hours of his fourth DPT shot when he was two and a half years old. I remember that day in 1980 when I took my exceptionally bright, healthy two and a half year old son to the pediatrician with all the trust and faith of a young first time mother. Saying words at seven months, speaking in full sentences and identifying words by the age of two, my precocious, cheerful little boy had a friend, Timmy, who lived across the street and also got four DPT shots by the age of two. Timmy was born to a different mother and father with a different genetic, biological, and environmental history. Timmy did not have a milk allergy or a family history of autoimmunity and allergy like Chris. He had not experienced a severe local reaction after his third DPT shot like Chris. And unlike Chris, Timmy had not just finished a course of antibiotics before he was vaccinated a fourth time. Timmy did not have a reaction to his booster DPT shot. Chris did. Within hours of vaccination, I watched my son's eyes roll back in his head and his head fall to his shoulder as if he'd fallen asleep sitting up. It was a classic post-DPT vaccine convulsion and collapse shock reaction, and I didn't know. Then when he slept for hours without moving, and I thought he was just taking a really long nap, I didn't understand that he was unconscious and could have died in his bed, and I would never have known why, because my pediatrician did not tell me about vaccine risks or how to identify 
vaccine reaction symptoms. The immune-mediated brain inflammation, also known as encephalopathy, that Chris experienced after vaccination was followed by progressive deterioration in his physical, mental, and emotional health, including chronic infections, constant diarrhea, new allergies, failure to thrive, loss of previous cognitive skills, inability to concentrate, and personality and behavior changes. Chris could no longer do what he could do before his fourth DPT shot. He became a totally different child. After repeated testing, he was diagnosed with minimal brain damage, including multiple learning disabilities and attention deficit disorder, and placed in a special education classroom for the learning disabled, where he stayed throughout his public education until the end of high school. Chris and I know how very fortunate he was that the severe vaccine reaction he experienced did not take his life or leave him with far more serious brain and immune dysfunction like so many of the children we have both come to know since then. Today, Chris is a videographer and competitive powerlifter. He has worked hard to compensate for the learning disabilities that made his childhood a frustrating, unhappy, and sometimes dangerous time in his life. Recent testing has revealed that Chris has an exceptional ability to engage in abstract thinking, and that when his learning disabilities are discounted, he has a high IQ, which is one reason why he was so frustrated and lost in a special education system that does not have a place for children like him. Chris is a vaccine reaction survivor. He is among the walking wounded who are not left with severe vaccine injuries, but whose futures are compromised in childhood when the risks of vaccination turn out to be 100%. How many mothers do not witness a child's vaccine reaction and never understand why their children's physical, mental, and emotional health suddenly regressed after vaccination? How many of those children are filling the special education classrooms, doctor's offices, mental health facilities, and prisons in America. What happened to my healthy son after vaccination in 1980 sent me on a journey to learn more and find out why doctors are not talking about vaccine risks and why a commercial product that can brain damage and kill people is being mandated. In part, I was driven by disappointment in myself as a college-educated woman who had come from a family of doctors and nurses and had worked as a writer at a teaching hospital before I became a mom. Why did I irrationally assume that vaccines were 100% safe and effective? Why had I blindly trusted a doctor instead of examining vaccination with the same due diligence that I had researched nutrition and toxic exposures during pregnancy and had taken prepared childbirth classes to weigh the merits of an epidural versus natural childbirth and breastfeeding versus bottle feeding. Some of my questions were answered during the two years of research that medical historian Harris Coulter and I conducted when I learned the pertussis vaccine contains lethal pertussis toxin and endotoxin, as well as aluminum and mercury, which can make the blood-brain barrier more permeable.
That research culminated in the publishing of our 1985 book, DPT, A Shot in the Dark. Harris and I were the first to report an association between vaccine-induced brain inflammation and a spectrum of brain dysfunction that doctors give labels like seizures, learning disabilities, ADHD, and autism. But it would take another 25 years of research and interfacing with politicians and serving on committees with doctors in industry, government, and medical trade to answer the rest of my questions. In 1982, when I joined with parents of DPT vaccine injured children and co-founded the nonprofit charity that is today known as the National Vaccine Information Center, the number of Americans questioning the safety of vaccines was so tiny, it could not even be measured in public opinion polls. Three decades later, national polls revealed that the majority of parents in America say the number one child health concern they have is about the safety of vaccines. And that is because in the 21st century, everybody knows somebody who was healthy, got vaccinated, and was never healthy again. And people are talking about it, especially mothers taking their children to pediatricians, because we are the ones who carry our babies inside us for nine months and give birth and feed and nurture them through infancy and are responsible for their health. And we are the ones who usually quit work and stay home and care for them when they are never well anymore. Mothers are asking their doctors logical questions about vaccination. And when their doctors react to those questions with irrational rage or cold refusal to provide medical care if one or more vaccines are declined, it becomes obvious that there is something very wrong with doctors using threats to push and enforce use of a pharmaceutical product. The militarization of vaccine policy in the United States is eroding the trust that used to exist between the people and their doctors and that broken trust is being replaced by fear. One of the reasons parents are asking more questions about vaccination is that there have been big changes in U.S. vaccine policy and law since 1982. In 1982, Centers for Disease Control officials told pediatricians to give children 23 doses of seven vaccines before age six, with the first vaccination starting at two months old. Today, the CDC has upped that number to 69 doses of 16 vaccines by age 18, with 49 doses of 14 vaccines given between the day of birth and age 6. That is twice the number of vaccines children in the 1980s got by age 6, and three times as many vaccinations as Americans used to get during their whole life. But these new vaccines are not for diseases like smallpox and polio. They are for infant diarrhea and chickenpox, which are rarely fatal in this country, and hepatitis B, which requires direct exposure to infected blood and cannot be easily transmitted in public. Not the kind of infectious diseases the justices of the 1905 U.S. Supreme Court probably had in mind when they issued their ruling in Jacobson versus Massachusetts. In that precedent-setting split decision, the high court majority ruled 
that state legislatures could use police powers to force a minority of dissenting citizens to use smallpox vaccine for what medical doctors and government officials judge to be the greater good of the majority. Those early 20th century justices based their decision in part on a false premise argued by lawyers representing public health officials who argued that medical doctors could predict ahead of time who will be injured or die from smallpox vaccination. The doctors have never been able to predict with any certainty who will be injured and die from vaccination, and that is a scientific fact. In affirming the constitutional right of states to use police powers to enact public health laws, the Supreme Court was also re reaffirming the roles of state government versus the federal government in public health law. Anything not defined in the U.S. Constitution as a federal responsibility has traditionally defaulted to the states. Public health was not defined in the Constitution as a federal responsibility, so public health laws have always been state laws, and this is why vaccination laws vary from state to state. It is important to note that the Supreme Court ruling in Jacobson versus Massachusetts at the turn of the 20th century was clearly based on a utilitarian rationale that a minority of citizens opposing vaccination should be forced to get vaccinated in service to the majority. Utilitarianism was a popular ethical theory in the late 19th and early 20th centuries in Britain and the US and was used by government officials as a mathematical guide to making public policy that ensured, quote, the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. Today, utilitarianism has a much more benign and lofty name attached to it, the greater good. Perhaps that is because utilitarianism went out of fashion in the mid-20th century. After, beginning in 1933, the Third Reich employed the utilitarian rationale as an excuse to demonize minorities judged to be a threat to the health and well-being of the state. Enlisting the assistance of government health officials, the first minority to be considered expendable for the good of the state were severely handicapped children, the chronically sick and mentally ill, the useless eaters they were called. And when the reasons for why a person was identified as a threat to the health economic stability or security of the state grew longer to include minorities who were too old or too Jewish or too Catholic or too opinionated or simply unwilling to believe what those in control of the state said was true. As the list of those the state branded as persons of interest to be demonized, feared, tracked, isolated and eliminated grew so did the collective denial of those who had yet to be put on that list. Prophetically, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes invoked the Jacobson versus Massachusetts greater good utilitarian decision to justify using the heel of the boot of the state to force the sterilization of a young Virginia woman, Carrie Buck, who doctors and social workers incorrectly judged to be mentally retarded like they said her mother was. In a chilling statement endorsing eugenics, Holmes revealed the morally corrupt core of utilitarianism that still props up mandatory vaccination laws in the U.S.
pointing to the Jacobson versus Massachusetts decision, Holmes declared that the state of Virginia could force Carrie Buck to be sterilized to protect society from mentally retarded people. Coldly, Holmes proclaimed, quote, three generations of imbeciles are enough. And quote, the principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. The 1905 U.S. Supreme Court majority made fundamental scientific and ethical errors in their ruling in Jacobson versus Massachusetts. It is clear that medical doctors cannot predict ahead of time who will be injured or die from vaccination. And utilitarianism is a discredited pseudo-ethic that has been used to justify horrific human rights abuses, not only in the Third Reich, but in human scientific experimentation and the inhumane treatment of prisoners and political dissidents here and in many countries, which is why it should never be used as a guide to public policy and law by any government. Although we may disagree about the quality and quantity of the scientific evidence used by doctors and governments to declare vaccines are safe at the population level, at our peril do we fail to agree that while the state may have the power, it does not have the moral authority to dictate that a minority of individuals born with certain genes and biological susceptibilities give up their lives without their consent for what the ruling majority has judged to be the greater good. The journey we take in this life is defined by the choices we make. And if we are not free to make those choices, the journey is not our own. And the choices we make that involve risk of harm to our physical body, which houses our mind and spirit, those choices are among the most profound choices we make in this life, which is why we must be free to make them. The public conversation we are having about vaccination in the 21st century began in the late 18th century when the first vaccine containing the human-cow hybrid vaccinia virus was created by a British doctor. Since then, smallpox vaccine has been as widely feared for causing vaccine strain viral infection, acute and chronic brain inflammation and death, as it has been praised as the first pharmaceutical product to eradicate a widely feared infectious disease. From 1905 to the late 1940s, smallpox vaccine was the only vaccine recommended and mandated by government. And sometimes smallpox vaccine was provided to citizens for free. Between 1955 and 1985, seven more vaccines were added to vaccine mandates for school children. By 2013, the base cost for a child to receive multiple doses of government-recommended vaccines in a pediatrician's office had increased from $80 per child in 1986 to a whopping $2,300 per child. And that doesn't include office administration fees. The federal government now spends $3.5 billion per year to buy vaccines from drug companies to supply to state public health clinics where half of America's children are vaccinated. Using electronic medical records and vaccine tracking systems to monitor every American's vaccination status, 
the CDC is giving financial rewards to states for maintaining high vaccination rates with all federally recommended vaccines. And states are penalized if they do not meet vaccine uptake goals. It is no surprise that new vaccine development is one of the fastest growing sectors in the pharmaceutical industry today, commanding a $36 billion annual global market. There were three big pharmaceutical corporations selling vaccines in the U.S. in 1986. Now there are seven. That is because in the early 1980s, drug companies threatened to stop making vaccines unless they were shielded from vaccine injury lawsuits. They bullied Congress into giving them almost complete product liability protection under the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act of 1986. After heavy lobbying by the American Academy of Pediatrics, in the 11th hour, Congress threw in civil liability protection for pediatricians giving vaccines to children as well. Not satisfied with partial liability protection, in 2011, drug companies and medical trade groups persuaded the U.S. Supreme Court to give the pharmaceutical industry the ultimate Wall Street bailout. In a split decision, the U.S. Supreme Court majority declared that even if a drug company could have made a vaccine less harmful, all vaccine injury lawsuits should be barred in the U.S. because FDA licensed and CDC recommended vaccines are, quote, unavoidably unsafe. Now the only legal remedy you have if you or your child get hurt by a mandated vaccine is to file a claim in the Federal Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. Even though $3 billion has been awarded to vaccine victims since 1986, three out of four plaintiffs are turned away empty-handed because U.S. Department of Health and Human Services officials have the power to decide who does and does not qualify for an award. And recently, they've changed the rules to make it almost impossible to get compensation if you or your child suffer brain inflammation and chronic encephalopathy after vaccination. And these same federal health officials were responsible for gutting the informing, recording, and reporting vaccine safety provisions that parents secured in the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act of 1986, which should be codified into all state public health laws to protect people who choose to use vaccines. When the same federal health agency that has the power to deny vaccine injury compensation also has the power to license new vaccines and take drug company money to fast track vaccines and partner with drug companies to develop and share profits from vaccine sales and make national vaccine policy that gets turned into state vaccine laws as well as assess vaccine risks and monitor vaccine safety. It is a clear cut case of the fox guarding the chicken coop. What most Americans do not know is that after September 11, 2001, Congress ceded more power to the executive branch, including allowing the Departments of Health, Defense and Homeland Security to enter into a formal public financial private partnership with the pharmaceutical industry and develop new vaccines behind a Freedom of Information Act shield. At the same time, the pharma medical trade public health lobby quickly went into the states and revised many state public health laws to increase police powers 
that can be wielded by state officials whenever the federal government declares a public health emergency. So you can be quarantined and vaccinated without your consent, even before accessing an attorney. It is very telling that Congress and the U.S. Supreme Court have declared vaccines to be unavoidably unsafe and use the utilitarian greater good rationale to justify making it impossible to hold anyone who developed, regulated, recommended, marketed, mandated, administered, or profits from federally recommended vaccines that injure you or your child accountable in a civil court of law in front of a jury of your peers. Most Americans don't know that our children are legally required to get more vaccinations than any other child population in the world. The governments of Canada, New Zealand, and many countries in the European Union strongly recommend but do not mandate vaccines. So after being given three times as many vaccinations today as they got three decades ago, how healthy are American children? Well, our highly vaccinated children and young adults in the 21st century are sicker than any other generation before them. They are plagued by an unprecedented chronic disease and disability epidemic marked by chronic inflammation in the body. Most chronic disease is about unresolved inflammation in the body. That is true for epilepsy, asthma, diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, heart disease, cancer, multiple sclerosis, obesity, and depression. Today, one child in six in America is learning disabled. One in nine has asthma. One in 10 suffers with ADHD. One in 50 develops autism, and one in 400 becomes diabetic. Millions more are suffering with severe allergies, inflammatory bowel disease, thyroid and metabolic disorders, MS, schizophrenia, and bipolar disorder. Mental disorders are twice as high among young American adults ages 18 to 25, with 30% now being diagnosed with some form of mental illness. It wasn't always like this in America. Not when my dad, who lived to be 94 years old, grew up in the 1920s and fully recovered from whooping cough, rubella, measles, mumps, polio, and chickenpox, and not when I was growing up in the 1950s and fully recovered from measles, rubella, and chickenpox. The chronic disease and disability epidemic in the 21st century is new, and we can't delude ourselves into accepting it as the new normal. Healthcare costs to treat Americans have climbed to $3 trillion per year, and there is no end in sight for this failing public health report card. The great flood of learning disabled, hyperactive, and autistic children has become unmanageable as future costs to care for the tidal wave of chronically ill and disabled young adults is so astronomic, it will bankrupt our healthcare system. And although compromised food sources, too little exercise, exposure to environmental toxins, and overuse of antibiotics and other prescription drugs could be cofactors in explaining why so many of our children are so sick today, the tripling of the numbers of vaccinations given in infancy and childhood when the immune systems and brains of children are developing most rapidly cannot be dismissed as one of those cofactors. Not without much more rigorous 
unbiased scientific investigation than has been done so far. Not without taking into consideration the emerging new microbiome science, revealing that the human body is made up of more DNA from viruses, bacteria, and other microbes than of human cells. And it is way too simplistic to view microbes as the enemy. Not without acknowledging the new epigenetic science, revealing that we don't just inherit DNA, but also the likelihood that our genes will be turned on or off and changed by the experiences and choices that our mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers made and that we make during our life. There is so much scientists do not know and have yet to learn about how the human immune system develops and functions depending upon who you are. In 1991, CDC officials announced that all healthy babies born to healthy mothers must get a hepatitis B shot 12 hours after being born, even though hepatitis B is a blood transmitted infection prevalent among adult IV drug users and those with multiple sexual partners. Even though the U.S. has always had a very low incidence of hepatitis B among infants and children, and even though the only way a newborn can get hepatitis B in this country is if a mother is infected with hepatitis B. The recombinant hepatitis B vaccine was the first genetically engineered vaccine licensed in the U.S. It was only tested in a few hundred infants born to hepatitis B infected mothers before CDC officials told pediatricians to give the shot to every healthy newborn, born to every healthy mother. Within a decade, public health officials in the majority of states had added hepatitis B vaccines to vaccine laws for daycare and school entry. Since 2002, CDC officials have told pediatricians to give babies 25 doses of vaccines in the first 12 months of life, which is more vaccinations than other developed nations give their newborns. All of these vaccinations should make the U.S. number one in low infant mortality rates. Not true. In 2013, a global infant mortality report revealed that the U.S. has the highest first-day infant mortality rate out of all industrialized countries in the world. 11,300 newborns die within 24 hours of birth in America every year. That is 50% more first-day newborn deaths than all industrialized countries combined. The U.S. ranks a shocking number 40 among all nations for infant mortality. Six out of a thousand babies born live in this country die before their first birthday. But what about states like Minnesota? California, Washington, and Oregon that allow personal belief vaccine exemptions. Do they have higher infant mortality rates? No, they don't. Let's look at California, the most populated state in the Union. Like Minnesota, California is one of the 18 states that, in addition to a medical and religious vaccine exemption, provides an exemption for personal beliefs, also described as philosophical or conscientious beliefs. California ranks a low number 32 among states in terms of vaccine coverage rates for children under age three, but has the sixth best infant mortality rate in the nation. Minnesota has the second best infant mortality rate and ranks number 37 
for vaccine coverage. In fact, six of the top 10 states with the best infant mortality rates in the country are states that do allow parents to file personal belief vaccine exemptions. And five of those rank in the bottom half for child vaccine coverage. Now let's look at Mississippi, one of the two states that does not allow a personal belief or religious belief vaccine exemption. Mississippi ranks a very high number three for the best child vaccine coverage among all states. Yet Mississippi, with one of the best vaccination rates in the country, ranks dead last, number 50, as the state with the very worst infant mortality rate. One in 100 babies born in Mississippi will die before the first birthday. That is an infant mortality rate worse than Costa Rica, Sri Lanka, and Serbia, and almost as bad as Thailand and Kuwait. Clearly, preventing babies from dying is about more than giving them lots of vaccines. That is because good health has always been about a lot more than vaccination. Poverty, poor nutrition and sanitation, exposure to environmental toxins, inadequate access to basic health care, lack of education, unemployment, constant physical, mental and emotional stress. These are risk factors that have always caused high infant mortality and poor health in underserved populations around the world, including in America. Mississippi is the state with the highest poverty and lowest median income of all states. But improving basic infrastructure to help impoverished citizens living in Mississippi and other states is taking a backseat to spending $2,300 per child to buy vaccines and enforce government vaccine policies that are having little effect on reducing infant mortality and chronic illness in children. Drug companies, public health officials and doctors are now reaching into the womb to manipulate the immune system of the developing fetus. It began in 2006 with CDC officials directing obstetricians to give women a flu shot during any trimester. In 2011, a pertussis containing TDAP shot was added for every pregnancy even though TDAP vaccine was licensed as a one-time booster and is not licensed for routine use in pregnant women. Yet CDC officials tell doctors it is okay to give pregnant women TDAP and flu shots during any trimester of every pregnancy, no matter how little time there is between pregnancies. The goal is to replace naturally acquired passive immunity transferred from mother to baby with artificial vaccine-acquired immunity. The FDA lists all four of these vaccines as category B or C pregnancy drugs, which means that there are no adequate well-controlled studies proving the vaccines are safe for the developing fetus or pregnant woman. There has been no scientific evaluation of whether there are changes in chromosomal integrity and immune and brain function at the cellular and molecular level in fetuses whose mothers are or are not vaccinated during pregnancy, or whether some women are unable to resolve inflammation in their bodies after vaccination during pregnancy. It is disturbing that once again, one-size-fits-all vaccine policy has preceded good vaccine science, especially when young women having babies in America today 
have twice the risk of dying during pregnancy, childbirth, or within one year of giving birth, as women did in America three decades ago. The U.S. maternal death rate has been climbing since 1987, and America now ranks number 50 in maternal mortality among other nations, with way too many young mothers dying from heart failure, high blood pressure, and stroke, blood infections, diabetes, and blood clots. Pregnant women and young parents today are legitimately concerned about the lack of good science demonstrating the safety of vaccine ingredients. There is no FDA requirement for vaccine ingredients to be tested separately. Vaccine ingredients include lab-altered bacteria and live viruses that are produced using cells, often genetically engineered, from humans, chicken eggs, monkey and dog kidneys, caterpillars and cows, yeast, gelatin, proteins, metals like aluminum and mercury, chemicals like formaldehyde, polysorbate, MSG and sodium borate, as well as residual animal and human DNA and RNA. Vaccine ingredients can interact with each other and stimulate different kinds of biological responses in different people. Some vaccine ingredients, like genetically altered live viruses, can be shed by the vaccinated and released into the environment to affect the evolution of microbes by recombining with other viruses and creating new ones that have the potential to infect human and animal populations. And FDA is now allowing drug companies to use bioactive vaccine ingredients, such as aluminum adjuvants, as fake placebos in pre-licensure clinical trials of new vaccines. Merck was allowed to use an aluminum placebo when it paid the FDA to fast-track aluminum-containing Gardasil vaccine. That kind of experimental design would not pass muster in an eighth grade science class. By the way, the money that Congress allows vaccine manufacturers to pay to the FDA to fast-track licensure of new vaccines is used to pay the salaries of federal employees who can retire from FDA or CDC and become highly paid pharma executives. One of the most controversial vaccine policy changes since 1982 has been repeatedly giving infants and children eight to 10 vaccines in combination shots on the same day. Although CDC officials say it is safe and effective to do that, there are no large prospective case-controlled trials measuring long-term health outcomes, including changes in immune and brain function between children who are and are not repeatedly given multiple vaccines on the same day throughout infancy and childhood. Comparing the physical, mental, and emotional health of vaccinated and unvaccinated children is not something public health officials want to do. They refuse to do it, claiming it is unethical to leave children unvaccinated in a clinical trial. Well, parents know the difference between the health of vaccinated and unvaccinated children in their own families. Just ask them. In 2012, an Institute of Medicine committee acknowledged what the 1905 U.S. Supreme Court did not. We do not all respond the same way to vaccination, and doctors cannot tell ahead of time which one of us will be injured or die from vaccination. Quote, both epidemiologic and mechanistic research suggest 
that most individuals who experience an adverse reaction to vaccines have a pre-existing susceptibility. These predispositions can exist for a number of reasons, genetic variants in human or microbiome DNA, environmental exposures, behaviors, illness or developmental stage, to name just a few, all of which can interact. Some of these adverse reactions are specific to the particular vaccines, while others may not be. Some of these predispositions may be detectable prior to the administration of vaccine. Others, at least with current technology and practice, are not. A year later, in 2013, another Institute of Medicine committee once again pointed out there are large gaps in vaccine science and doctors do not know which children will have adverse reactions to vaccines. Quote, evidence assessing outcomes in subpopulations of children who may be potentially susceptible to adverse reactions to vaccines, such as children with a family history of autoimmune disease or allergies, or children born prematurely, was limited and is characterized by uncertainty. The Institute of Medicine has also concluded that the CDC's recommended child vaccine schedule has not been adequately scientifically evaluated for safety and stated, quote, key elements of the entire schedule, the number, frequency, timing, order, and age of administration of vaccines have not been systematically examined in research studies. Although a recent vaccine safety review conducted by Rand Corporation, a federal defense contractor, is being promoted by CDC as, as an independent study, proving vaccines are safe and reactions are rare, it was not an independent unbiased review. It was an inside job that was funded, designed, and peer-reviewed by federal officials, including the CDC's Director of Immunization Safety. This summer, a CDC senior scientist admitted publicly that he and the CDC's current Director of Immunization Safety withheld data and did not follow study protocol in an MMR vaccine safety study for the purpose of covering up evidence of an association between vaccination and autism. At the same time, a federal court judge gave the green light to two former Merck employees to sue Merck for intentionally withholding information about the ineffectiveness of the mumps vaccine in the MMR shot. The Institute of Medicine has confirmed there are still outstanding questions about whether the childhood vaccine schedule is or is not associated with development of a variety of childhood diseases. Asthma, atopy, which means the genetic predisposition to allergy, autoimmunity, autism, learning disorders, communication disorders, developmental disorders, intellectual disability, attention deficit disorder, disruptive behavior disorder, tics and Tourette syndrome, seizures, febrile seizures, and epilepsy. However, over the past 25 years, Institute of Medicine committees have found enough solid scientific evidence to conclude that certain vaccines can cause brain inflammation or acute encephalopathy, chronic encephalopathy and nervous system dysfunction, anaphylaxis, febrile seizures, Guillain-Barre syndrome, brachial neuritis, acute and chronic arthritis, thrombocytopenia, vaccine strain infection, death, shock, 
an unusual shock-like state, protracted inconsolable crying, syncope, and deltoid bursitis. And then there is mounting evidence that a century of vaccination has also put pressure on microbes to mutate in order to survive. How many Americans know that there is a difference between naturally acquired immunity and artificial vaccine-acquired immunity? Vaccine-acquired immunity stimulates an inflammatory response and production of antibodies in the blood, also called humoral immunity, which may only last a short time. But infection stimulates inflammation that may be more easily resolved and usually produces two kinds of immunity, both humoral and cell-mediated. And so naturally acquired immunity is often longer lasting. And that is one reason why there have been more reports of B. pertussis whooping cough outbreaks in recent years. An investigation of a well-publicized outbreak of whooping cough in California in 2010 revealed the majority of children diagnosed with whooping cough had been fully vaccinated. It reminded me of 1985 when the American Academy of Pediatrics publicized whooping cough outbreaks in eight states. I investigated and presented a report to the CDC in 1986 that came to the same conclusion. Many of the children and adults diagnosed with whooping cough in 1985 and 1986 had gotten three or more DPT shots. Since 1981, more than 95% of children entering kindergarten have received four or more doses of pertussis-containing vaccine. CDC officials now admit that recovering from pertussis can confer 10 to 20 years of immunity. But at best, pertussis vaccine-induced immunity only lasts two to five years. There is more. Last year, the FDA sent out a press release stating that vaccinated children and adults can still be infected with and transmit B. pertussis to other vaccinated and unvaccinated people without showing any symptoms. And there's more. After a century of global pertussis vaccination programs, the B. pertussis organism has evolved, and the vaccine does not protect against a mutated pertussis strain that is now widely circulating. Pertussis outbreaks are not related to a failure to vaccinate, but the failure of a vaccine that does not do what it is advertised to do. The bottom line is that pertussis vaccine often fails to prevent infection or transmission. You cannot assume if you and your child are vaccinated that you cannot get sick or transmit infection to others. The person standing next to you in a doctor's office or elevator or other public place could be infected with B. pertussis, sneeze, and transmit it to you or your child whether or not you all have been vaccinated according to the government recommended schedule. So much for the illusion of pertussis vaccine acquired herd immunity. And that is why it is so important to know how to identify symptoms of pertussis, which can cause brain inflammation and be fatal for newborns and other infectious diseases that can have serious complications for some people and use important common sense preventive health measures, like washing our hands, covering our noses and mouths when we sneeze and cough, avoiding close contact with those who are sick, and if we're sick, staying home until we're well. Now let's look at measles. Between 10 and 17% 
of the 600 confirmed measles cases reported in the U.S. this year occurred in people who have been vaccinated. More than half of those measles cases were in Ohio, where state health officials say that some people were hospitalized, but most recovered at home on their own. When I was a child, I got measles. So did my sister and brother and all my friends. It started off with a fever, runny nose, sore throat, and white spots inside our mouths. Then we got an itchy red rash on our faces that spread all over, and I, I remember wearing my mom's sunglasses in the house because the light hurt my eyes. My parents and grandparents and their sisters and brothers also had measles when they were young. When I was growing up in the 1950s, measles, mumps, rubella, and chickenpox were infections we all experienced. And our parents didn't worry much about them, like they did worry about polio. For most common childhood diseases in the 20th century, complications were rare for healthy children. In 1960, three years before the measles vaccine was licensed in the U.S., there were 380 measles-related deaths reported among an estimated 4 to 5 million Americans who got measles. Measles complications include pneumonia, severe ear infections, and brain inflammation. Every life is important. And to put the numbers 380 deaths from measles into perspective, a 2013 study published in the Journal of Patient Safety found that between 200,000 and 440,000 Americans every year enter a hospital and suffer some type of preventable harm that contributes to their deaths. Most American women born before the measles vaccine was licensed have naturally acquired immunity to measles. And we passed antibodies onto our babies to protect them from measles during the first year of life. But young vaccinated moms today cannot transfer longer lasting naturally acquired measles antibodies to their babies. And newborns today are now vulnerable to the measles from the first day of life. Things have definitely changed in the past 60 years. Today, a new genetically engineered measles vaccine and scores of other vaccines are being created through the expanding billion dollar pharma government public-private financial partnership. Federal health agencies and drug companies now split the profits from new vaccines they jointly develop and market for mandates. The U.S. government and pharma are co-developing genetically engineered Ebola vaccines and other vaccines for everything from cytomegalovirus, West Nile virus, enterovirus, and parainfluenza to tooth decay, acne, bad breath, smoking, cocaine addiction, obesity and high blood pressure, to salmonella, botulism, hepatitis C and E, herpes, gonorrhea, and HIV AIDS. Many of these experimental vaccines will be fast-tracked to licensure like Gardasil was in 2006, which means the FDA's already too low licensing standards for proof of safety and effectiveness can be bypassed to grease the skids for the new vaccines to be rushed to market and mandated. Novel vaccine adjuvants will ramp up the immune system to stimulate hyperinflammatory responses, forcing the body to reject naturally acquired immunity in the womb and from mother's milk in favor of accepting artificial vaccine-induced immunity in the womb and after birth. This could be especially dangerous for infants who cannot easily resolve inflammation because of individual susceptibilities 
such as a predisposition to autoimmunity and allergy. Genetically engineered and live viral vectored vaccines will use nanoparticle technology to deliver vaccines on skin patches and in bananas, potatoes, rice, and wheat, or through inhalation vaccine sprays. Vaccines in the future will change our DNA and human immune function in profound ways with unknown effects on the microbiome, epigenetics, and the environment. Will scientists working for government and industry who are tinkering with the natural order be able to control what could go wrong in the brave new world they are creating and demanding that all of us live in? Will more virulent antibiotic resistant strains of bacteria evolve to replace vaccine strains like has happened with the pneumococcal vaccine given to babies since 2001? Will live virus vaccines put pressure on viruses to cause disease later in life, like has happened with the mandated use of chickenpox vaccine by children that is now associated with a shingles epidemic among adults? Will forcing every American to get an annual flu shot starting in the womb and during infancy and continuing throughout life make our population exquisitely vulnerable to a deadly pandemic flu strain that will take out millions because nobody is allowed to obtain natural immunity from type A or type B influenza the old-fashioned way. Is the war on microorganisms making the world a safer place or is it fatally compromising the biological integrity of the human race? I don't think it's wise to try to fool Mother Nature disrupt the balance of her intelligent design, and she is likely to reclaim the earth and all living organisms on it. Against the backdrop of all these unanswered questions about vaccination and health, we are witnessing an unprecedented assault on freedom of thought, speech, and autonomy in America. Prominent doctors creating and selling patents on government-recommended vaccines are allowed to be federal vaccine policymakers, and are applauded for telling doctors and parents that a child can safely be given 10,000 vaccines at once. Universities take money from pharma and government to conduct vaccine trials, while self-identified bioethicists in academia are calling for criminalization of vaccine refusal so parents can be charged with murder if their unvaccinated child transmits an infectious disease to another person who dies. Ideologues and paid propagandists are orchestrating online hate speech campaigns to defame and destroy the careers of doctors and scientists, journalists and legislators, celebrities and parents of vaccinated children if they criticize vaccine safety or defend health freedom. Doctors and nurses giving vaccines are being pressured to turn a blind eye to the fact we are not all the same. Federal health officials have narrowed contraindications to vaccination, so there is almost no official medical reason to delay or not give a vaccine. Everyone is a candidate for vaccination all the time. Even the severely immunocompromised are being told to get most vaccines. Cancer patients and those with HIV are vaccinated. 
Symptoms of previous vaccine reactions are often dismissed as unimportant, so revaccination can take place. And then, when something bad happens to a person's health after vaccination, it is written off as a coincidence. Like when a bright, healthy child regresses after vaccination and is eventually diagnosed with brain and immune system dysfunction that doctors label learning disabilities or ADHD or epilepsy or inflammatory bowel disease or autism. And there is collective denial that vaccination had anything to do with that regression by those who created, sold, licensed, recommended, promoted, and mandated the vaccines given to that once healthy person who is now very unhealthy. And nobody in that chain of denial is held accountable or is liable for that bad thing that happened except the person who got vaccinated. It is one thing for government to provide access to affordable vaccines we can choose to use as our preferred preventive health care option. It is a far different thing to bully and threaten people with no shots, no education, no shots, no employment, no shots, no medical care, no shots, no health insurance, no shots, no visa. Is a day coming when we will not be able to get a driver's license, file our taxes, get on a plane, check into a hotel, or shop in a store if we cannot show proof we have gotten every dose of every government licensed and recommended vaccine? Yes, it will. Unless Americans stand up now and use the courts, the legislative system, and our collective voices in the public square to put legal limits on those who hold power and rule the U.S. healthcare system with an iron fist. So we will not be denied the right to know and freedom to choose the kind of life we want to live and how we want to stay healthy while we live it. Because science is not static. Doctors are not infallible. And we are not all the same. Because if the state can tag, track down, and force individuals to be injected with biologicals of known and unknown toxicity today, then there will be no limit on which individual freedoms the state can take away in the name of the greater good tomorrow. The signs are everywhere that it is not too late for us to chart a new destiny that embraces true health, values individual life and liberty, and respects the wisdom of nature and our need to live in harmony with it. In the midst of the suffering and oppression we see all around us, there is also a great awakening taking place among the people who do not want to be sick and powerless anymore. Millions of Americans are using their intelligence, following their instincts, and making more conscious health choices. We're choosing to eat organic, remove mercury fillings, and drink water that is fluoride-free. We're exercising regularly and getting more sleep, reducing stress, and making sure we get enough vitamin D, especially from natural sunlight. We're refusing to eat GMO foods 
and we're avoiding indiscriminate use of prescription medications and unnecessary surgery. We're seeking out holistic health professionals that offer chiropractic, homeopathic, naturopathic, acupuncture, nutritional support, and other options for staying well that help us maintain health without posing so many risks to our health. It is an exciting time to be alive, engaged, and witnessing an age of enlightenment struggling to sweep away a failed dying paradigm so that a new consciousness filled with light can emerge. Meaningful change is never easy. It is always darkest before the dawn. We carry on because we must. We have faith. We hold on to the truth. We are brave. We do not give up. Our mission continues. No forced vaccination, not in America. Before you take a risk, find out what it is. To learn more about vaccines, diseases, and the human right to inform consent, visit mvic.org, the website of the nonprofit charity, the National Vaccine Information Center. Since 1982, MVIC has worked to prevent vaccine injuries and deaths through public education and to secure informed consent protections in U.S. vaccine policies and laws. Visit mvic.org and mvicadvocacy.org to get well-referenced vaccine information that you can trust and share with your family, friends, and members of your community. It's your health, your family, your choice.